Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 6. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you, all of them from author Nick Boddick, about eerie H2O, devilish debts, villainous views, and ghoulish graveyards. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors... Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight from Nick Boddick takes us to a California town 
not all that different from other towns of its size, except for one thing. No one there is allowed to set foot in the local swimming hole. When some unfortunate soul breaks the rule, we'll find out why. Without further ado, I present to you Humming Lake, California. I've been here since I was two years old, and by all accounts, had a normal upbringing. That's owed to the fact that this is an altogether normal place. The people work in other nearby towns or craft wares here that they sell in those aforementioned places. Lives lived here are all those of typical small-town residents, save for one aspect. A lot that's been around since long before the town itself came into existence— a law that was set in place by unknown peoples at an unknown time, a law that has been tirelessly enforced by all peoples who've called this place home since, a law that has been abided by all who set foot in this place except one. The law is simple to abide by. Never touch the water. All children who are brought up in Humming Lake, which, by the way, is a colloquial name, uh, are taught from the youngest of ages to never touch the lake itself. For me personally, I never knew why the law was put in place, nor did my parents, nor theirs. The reason for the law and the consequences that would arise from breaking it has been lost to history. Simply put, it was a rule that is always followed, an inherent regulation by which we all abided, however blindly. You might ask... Well, why would you live in a lake that you apparently can't enjoy? And it's a fair question. Uh, the reason is that along with the law being passed down, so too has been the residents of Humming Lake's unwavering protection of the lake. For us, the lake has always been treated as a decoration, a massive, idyllic painting on display at the edge of the northernmost residents' backyards. And besides that assumed responsibility, it's simply a wonderful place to live. Out here, the nature around us is part of our town itself. Beautiful views, hiking, camping, rock climbing, it all amounts to an ideal, simple place to live for people seeking a simple way of life. We're about 40 minutes from a larger town, so while secluded, we aren't totally disconnected from the rest of the world. We just don't go in the lake. Last summer, we found ourselves under the oppressive thumb of an overwhelming heat wave. As it surely isn't difficult to imagine, the seductive gazes from the curiously dark yet still glistening water were frustratingly tempting. But still, the townspeople of Humming Lake obeyed our cardinal law. It was easy enough. Other summers had proven similarly unbearable, and we made it through. Above-ground pools provided the same respite that cold showers and sprinklers did. But for eight-year-old Rodney Hartle, such substitutions weren't enough. For Rodney, the siren song of the 1.7-acre lake was too alluring to resist. While spending the afternoon running around with friends in the Danforth's backyard, which, after a small ditch leads directly into the lake, under the watchful eye of all their parents, 
Rodney went inside through the back door to use the bathroom. Shortly thereafter, while Cal Danforth manned the grill, he saw in his periphery a shirtless Rodney Hartle sprinting from the front yard down the side of the house. It took Cal a moment to realize what was happening, and by the time he did, it would soon prove to have been a moment too late. In a split second, the spry eight-year-old had breezed by him, all while screaming in the kind of defiant voice only a child can truly muster, I'm going swimming! Everybody's heads turned with faces of abject terror as Cal dropped the spatula to the ground and tried as he might, the only person with even a hope of catching the rebellious boy before it was too late. The rest of us watched with wide eyes as Rodney took step after rapid step with every intention of plunging himself into that forbidden abyss. He took a barely noticeable larger step over the shallow ditch, and in two more steps he would be filling the water that none of us had ever felt against his skin, were it not for Cal Danforth. His long strides caught up to Rodney Hartle, and he stretched out his arms, just able to hook around Rodney's waist. But it was too late. The forest behind Rodney's dash pulled Cal with it, sending the two tumbling down. Rodney's entire right side became soaked in the immersible waters, while Rodney wound up on his hands and knees. The rest of us stayed frozen in apprehensive anticipation as Cal scrambled to get himself and Rodney back on the grass. Amber Hartle screamed and buried her face in her husband's shoulder as we all waited for whatever unspeakable horror was surely about to befall the man and boy by the water, and in many of our minds, us. But nothing happened. As the two sat terrified on the grass, just out of reach of the first man-made ripples, Humming Lake had seen in innumerable eons, Jim Hartle began screaming at his son, tearing himself away from his wife, who desperately tried to hold back to no avail. Jennifer Danforth hurried over to her husband with towels and dropped them, then quickly stepped back. Jim grabbed a towel on his way over and used it to snatch his son up. Rodney attempted to wrap his arms around his father, frightened at everyone's reaction and his dad's own ire. But Jim pushed his son off of him at the very last moment, sparing himself from getting any of the water on him. Cal dried himself off, wisely telling everyone to stay away from him. It seemed like an eternity that we all stood there. The burgers that had been on the grill were charred to a crisp as we watched intently, half at the lake, the other half, at the only two people who had touched it in our lifetime. But nothing happened to either. Cal Danforth and Rodney Hartle dried off, with the latter being taken home by his parents, the former then politely asking his guests, to return home as well. I left Cal with a sincere, call me if you need anything, and went home. And for the next ten days, everything was as it always was. Rodney Hartle was kept under a closer eye than he had been, but after a week's grounding and a stern talking to, so too was his life back to normal. On that tenth night, however, while John Derby and I sat on the back deck overlooking the lake, Cracking our seventh beer each, a rustling came up from over the trees to 
to our right, the ones just past Cal Danforth's house. John and I each turned a bit and watched as something emerged from the shadows, lit only by the cloud-covered moon behind it. We joked at Rob Lagrasse, the closest thing we had, to an archetypical town drunk had gotten lost on his way from the bedroom to the bathroom and was returning from defiling the side of a tree. But the longer we watched, the less it looked like Rob Lagrasse, the less it looked like anyone we knew, the less it looked like an actual person. It lurched along in a broken gait, taking one step in the same time any able-bodied person could take five. Whenever it was, it was grossly thin, leaning slightly to the front and to the side. Its gaunt, skeletal arms dangled freely, hanging nearly to its bony knees. We watched as the silhouette of this hellishly shaped monstrosity trudged along at its own leisurely pace. As our eyes adjusted to whatever it was we were looking at, we saw thin black protrusions poking out from its pitch-black shape, as well as the fact that it was dripping. John and I both rose to our feet as the thing continued its slow march toward Cal Danforth's house. John ran inside, telling me in a half-breath that he was grabbing his gun, and moments later he returned with a hunting rifle for himself and a pistol for me. We each took slow steps toward Cal Danforth's, and even at our slowest, we were moving just a bit faster than this thing that came from the trees. Stop right there! John yelled out. The thing didn't obey John's order. It was as though it didn't hear him at all. John loaded a bullet into the chamber of his gun. You hear that, motherfucker? I said, fucking stop! Still, the thing didn't appear to have heard any of it, although this time, as it made its slow way across the Danforth's yard, coming up to the grill, it stood up straight. We were now able to see the thing's height in its entirety. It stood conservatively at seven feet. Perhaps it was adrenaline that kept me from hearing it. Perhaps it was my inebriation. Perhaps, again, it hadn't happened until this moment. But as it stood up, it made a stomach-churning, crackling noise, as though its bones were all resetting. The noise persisted as it took its next step, and the one after that, and every step thereafter. Each time it lifted one of its feet off the ground for one of its heavy, short steps, it sounded like countless sets of knuckles cracking for the first time in years. John told me to run back and grab his flashlight from inside his back door. I returned moments later with a high-powered handheld floodlight and turned it on, bathing the Danforth's backyard in light and giving us our first real look at the thing from the trees. Its skin was smooth, a dark, murky gray. The protrusions we'd seen in the silhouette were revealed to be twigs and sticks clinging to its body, and while it possessed no hair, parts of its body were splayed with what looked like seaweed. Motherfucker, I'll shoot you! John screamed, and a moment later, a light turned on near the front of the Danforth's abode. This thing still paid us no mind, 
Another light turned on, this time in Carol's kitchen, which is situated near his back door. Carol, stay inside, I yelled. The fuck is that thing, John whispered to me. I offered no speculation. What the hell are you guys doing? We heard Cal call out from his open kitchen window. There's some fucking thing in your yard, man, heading straight for you. As John yelled back, the thing stopped. Its bones sang their crunchy song as it turned around and faced the water. There was a deafening silence that lingered between myself and John, the lanky creature, and Cal Danforth. What finally broke that silence gives me chills just thinking about it now. We were still a fair distance away from it, so its features weren't readily apparent, but from what I could see, its eyes were little more than sunken holes in its face, and its mouth stretched much farther up the cheek than any normal person. And then it opened that mouth. It opened an average amount, like your mouth or mine would open when we spoke. But then, accompanied by the sinking crunch of snow being packed under a boot, its jaw unhinged. All the while, water spilled from the openings in its face. It then began making sounds. There weren't words, that was clear, even despite the fact that it was talking with a mouthful of water. It was undulating. The sounds it made came from deep within its throat. Horrible, ghastly, terrifying sounds. John aimed his rifle at the gray creature and prepared to shoot. But I think he was as curious as I was regarding what this strange being was trying to communicate and to whom. After a few more seconds of those hellish noises emanating from deep inside the thing's stomach, it stopped. And for a few fleeting moments, the only sounds I heard were my breath, my heartbeat, the soft whistle of a light breeze, and the invisible cicadas chirping their midnight song. But then the cicadas stopped, and it was that silence that made my heart sink to my stomach. That absence of all sound that registered in my brain as a signal that something was very, very wrong. And after a single moment of that silence that felt like an eternity, the lake responded. In that moment, I learned from hence, Humming Lake had gotten its colloquial sobriquet. It didn't have a source, at least one that I could discern as I stood there, but a distinct hum simply materialized in my ears. It surrounded us, and it sounded as though it were coming from behind me, in front of me, on both sides of me, from under me, and from above me, and from within me, and without me, all at once. It was low, as if someone with a deep voice was simply going, Hmm. I can't say for certain, but at that moment I looked at the lake, and it seemed darker. There was always an uncharacteristic dimness to the body of water, a sort of absence of the color that might come to mind when one thinks of such a geographic feature, of more a deeper blue, especially toward the center of the small inland lake. At that moment, even under the moonlight, the lake seemed to swallow all light and appeared a pitch-black pit of uncertainty. 
That pit hummed, and then it stopped, replaced then by the abnormal figure in Cal Danforth's backyard, and its guttural nonsense. The cicadas returned as the creature in the lake finished their indiscernible conversation, with the former turning back towards Cal. A small man, but with the courage and brashness of a hundred larger men, Cal Danforth yelled out for John not to shoot it, and that he would take care of it. After disappearing into his house for a moment, and while the dripping gray mass of bones and smooth skin made two more of its crooked, audible steps toward his home, Cal returned with a metal baseball bat. John and I watched, he, through the iron sights of his gun, and me through my disbelieving eyes, as Cal Danforth stepped out through his back door, ranting and raving about how some fucked-up cripple wasn't going to threaten him. "'You want to come on to my property?' he shouted rhetorically. "'Think you're going to come on to my property and do some shit?' He clearly hadn't thought of what he was going to say beforehand, and was winging it in the moment, but it didn't matter what he said. Cal approached the lumbering beast, baseball bat cocked back and ready to swing. But it didn't matter. With the speed it hadn't exhibited until then, it stretched out its lanky arm and rammed two of its thin, tendril-like fingers, fingers that I would swear got longer at its whim, underneath Cal Danforth's jaw up through the fleshy part underneath his mouth and pulled the left side of the lower half of his jaw off. It happened in the blink of an eye, with an ease akin to a giant brushing away a fly. This thing had torn skin and snapped bone, leaving Cal Danforth standing in stupefied shock as the lower half of his face hung to one side. A mess of blood and viscera and a lower set of teeth displaced from their rightful picture on Cal Danforth's visage. He stood there silently as the creature retracted its hand and flung it up once again much in the same way it had the first time, but now without the impediment of the lower half of Cal's face to slow its thrust. Its fingers, longer yet again, plunged into the top of Cal's mouth, but this time they didn't retract. This time I watched as Cal's body went limp, held up only by the unnatural strength of his killer, and his eyes began bleeding. John and I, too, were in shock, and he snapped out of it first. He yelled as he began firing his weapon at the thin, monstrous beast, the deafening bangs of his gun shaking me from my stupor. I began firing at it, too, and after my second shot, it dropped Cal to the ground. Her shots didn't seem to affect it at first, but the more John unloaded into it, it looked to be putting up its arms, though it seemed not in defense, but in annoyance. Even still, it essentially ignored us. It resumed its slow, laborious gait, seemingly aiming to go around Cal's house. In that stressful time, I wasn't sure where its destination might be. John quickly ran the few yards back to his home, and disappeared for the briefest of moments inside before returning with a machete. I voiced my concern, noting that a bevy of bullets hadn't been able to harm it, but John still persisted. He made a wide berth around the thing, machete in hand, 
It was nearly to the left of Cal's house when John made his move. He swung the machete, cutting cleanly and easily into its head, splitting it from ear to misplaced jaw joint, and he continued hacking away at it with an apparently endless supply of water seeming to splash against the ground and against John. The thing collapsed to the ground in a puddle, its entire body turning to water as it perished, dousing John and soaking his shoes in the grass they stood on. You motherfucker! The drunken John shouted. You fucking see that, man? Fuck this fucking thing! He stopped speaking abruptly and stood up perfectly straight, dropping the machete to the ground with a light splash. Then he turned back, first toward what I thought was me, but I would soon realize was the lake. Johnny? I asked meekly, my voice shaking, as my friend started taking rigid steps. He walked right past me in jerky, unnatural motions. I called out to him several times, each time ignored. I watched helplessly as John walked down the grass and right past me, as though I didn't exist. When I realized he was walking toward the lake, I ran to try and stop him, but whatever force was compelling him to walk to the lake compelled me to stop. I wasn't capable of moving, unable to stop my friend. I was forced to watch as Johnny slowly walked into the lake, first up to his ankles, then his knees, then up to his waist, and then he stopped. He stood there for what felt like an eon, and, without any indication that it was about to happen, preceding John Derby was ripped underneath the surface of Humming Lake. The same moment he was under was the moment I was freed from whatever it was that was keeping me in place, and not a moment later did that hum return, only this time it was loud enough to hear a mile away. By this point, other people had come from their houses to see what all the commotion was about, and one by one saw Cal Danforth's mangled corpse and asked me what had happened, a question to which I didn't truly have an answer. The hum raised in volume, and before long glass started shattering, and then, as quickly as it started, it stopped. And moments later, from the trees on either side of the four lawns that sat on that part of Humming Lake came more monstrosities. All of them had humanoid shapes as vague as the first of their kind that had arrived, but their limbs were all mangled, misshapen branches, jutting out from their emaciated trunks, and all of them dripped the same water as their fallen associate. There must have been at least thirty of them, and all of them started towards us with the same hurryless stroll. Just as I was about to address the rest of my fellow townspeople, something was launched from the lake landing on John Derby's yard, and then a second something landed not three feet away from it. I picked up John's flashlight and cautiously walked over to whatever it was. Upon shining the light on the unsolicited gifts from Humming Lake, I saw that John Derby had been returned to us. He was split at the torso missing his left arm, and had the clear absence of a head, with maybe three inches of his spine peeking out through the cranial wound. Jess Randolph screamed. Mike Ward vomited, and I nearly passed out. But a message I needed to get to the townspeople kept me conscious. Hey! 
I shouted, then lowered my voice to a hushed whisper. I think they're coming for the Hartle kid. The threat of unspeakable horrors befalling a child was enough to kick everyone into gear. I and three others began running to the Hartle's house, while three others who had joined the ruckus stayed behind to combat the creatures from the lake against my strongest objections. As we ran, we began hearing the screams of our unfortunate, bull-headed neighbors, and a look behind me at the angular, hobbling shadows, slowly but surely swarming them, turned my legs to rubber, and nearly made me fall. Our town doesn't have a typical structure. It's more or less just an area where houses are sporadically placed, seemingly at random, with a single road that leads out into the rest of the world. We ran through yard after yard until finally we stepped foot onto the one belonging to the Hartles. Jess and I pounded on the front door, screaming for the Hartles to wake, and after a few moments the lights inside on the house began turning on. Brian Hartle opened the door in a half-asleep rage with a, What the fuck? to greet us. We told him that something was coming for his son as a result of the young Hartle's failure to adhere to the law that had overshadowed the town of Humming Lake since long before any of us came into existence. Naturally, the elder Hartle expressed his willingness to shoot whatever that something might be, but I told him it would be a fruitless endeavor. I made the decision that Rodney needed to be hidden elsewhere. I told Brian to take his family and drive far and fast away from Humming Lake. And so we went back into the Hartle's house while the patriarch woke up his wife and son. I peered out the front window and saw in the distance the limping, jagged silhouettes heading our way and yelled to the family to hurry. And at that same moment, me, Bill Dyer, Jess, and Mike heard the shower turn on. Fearing that we didn't adequately express the urgency with which they needed to be moving, Jess and I ran through the living room and turned down the hall, where we saw all three Hartles standing in fear, all three of them also wondering who turned their shower on. And then to mine and Jess, right? The kitchen sink turned on at full blast. Is that? Jess started, but she didn't need to finish. Not a moment later did the flow of water become too strong, sending the faucet soaring into the kitchen ceiling. The water was dark and murky, the unmistakable water of Humming Lake, not the clear well water the town had come to rely on. The knobs were next, landing on the now wet linoleum with a tin ring from each. The Hartles yelped when similar sounds came from their bathroom, the shower head and bathroom sink faucet, and all the corresponding knobs bursting from their right places, flooding the bathroom with the forbidden liquid. After a moment, that very same water began pooling out the bathroom and into the hallway. Jump over it! We have to leave now! I yelled. The family obliged, and all three made it to the living room without so much as a drop of water on them. Brian grabbed his keys from a bowl on a small table at the end of the hallway, and we all made our way outside where our hope was crushed. The lights on all the houses we could see were on, and coming from inside the houses were shouts of anger, fear, and confusion, as well as water. So much water. It came from under all of the Hartle's neighbors' doors, and before long it came from the Hartle's house, too. 
We did our best to avoid it, but Mike Ward wasn't so lucky. As he tried to step over a stream of water, he tripped, landing hands and face first into a shallow river. Over him, Bill Dyer similarly stumbled, ending up on his backside, soaked. Jess yelled at them to run the other way so as not to risk us getting wet and wished them luck in a single breath. I looked behind us and saw the Hartle's car with water surrounding it on the ground below. Then I saw them. The creatures had made their way up to the neighborhood, with some breaking off from their groups to go inside the houses, belonging to whom I can only assume were those not lucky enough to avoid the fountains, the lakes, it created from their fixtures. Finally, we reached our destination, which was three houses down from the Hartles. Bob Harrison's house. Bob was in the middle of reshingling his roof and had what we hoped would be our saving grace, a ladder already set up against the back of his house. With the water closing in from three sides, our only route was to hope and pray that the spots on Bob's backyard that we took weren't yet soiled by the lake water coming from his and the other houses. Brian had Rodney over his shoulder, and only moments before we reached the ladder, his foot made a loud squelch. Before I even realized what had happened, Brian grabbed me, flipped me around, and threw Rodney over my shoulder. He told me to go, and that he was going to climb the lattice on the next house over. Rodney climbed the ladder first, then Jess, then Amber Hartle, then me. As we climbed to the roof, I looked over and saw Brian sloshing through Bill's yard and over to the side of Hal Chalmers. Once we made it to the roof, I kicked the ladder to the ground. I can't be certain how long it was, but we were safe for a few minutes. We took the time, sitting on the half of Bob Harrison's roof that was shingled, to try to regroup. But none of us could come up with a plan. All the while, there was a cacophony of fractures and cracks and splinters and breaks blended with the close and distant screams of the unfortunate residents of Humming Lake surrounding us. And before we knew it, the lake's grotesque agents were shambling to the ground below. We were surrounded by the swamp of the lake water to the back and sides and by the slick, gray, jagged beings to the front. There was a brief standoff, whereupon uh, we on the roof simply watched in terror as the creatures below congregated in a single goal in mind. The silence was haunting as they looked up at us, and that silence was only broken when one of them raised its arms with all the creaks and cracks that accompanied its movement. It pointed to the eight-year-old boy, his mother yelled down, they weren't going to take her son, as any mother would, at which point the creatures craned their crooked necks and arched their mangled backs to face the direction of the lake, now roughly two blocks away. One of them spoke loudly in an indiscernible language, and once it had said its piece, they all made the turn back toward us, spine tingling for us and spine shattering for them. Then the lake replied. The hum came from all around us, steadily rising in volume, the glass on several more houses shattered, and it became disorienting. While the rest of us covered our ears, Amber Hartle released her son and stood up. What are you doing? 
Jess yelled out, but Amber didn't respond. Amber simply stood up and took three steps forward, the last of which sent her tumbling off the roof to the ground below, a fall that accumulated in a sickening crunch that I was thankful I didn't have to see the visual for. Oh, my God, Jess said, looking past me to our right. We had been so focused on what was going on in front of us that we had nearly forgotten about the just-now-become-a-widower Brian on the other roof. Two of the lake's emissaries had wandered their jagged wander two houses down. Brian, too, was blindly walking down the roof, and we watched helplessly as he went headfirst over the edge. But instead of simply hitting the ground below, one of the creatures reached up its hand, which went through Brian's skull and down the inside of his face, throat, and chest, and caught him, then tossed his limp cadaver to the grass. Jess and I sat there in horror and shock, unable to move, while Rodney wrapped his arms around Jess, sobbing, presumably at the revelation that he was now an orphan. The lake then spoke again, but this time it was less booming. It's hard to describe a hum. But whereas before this moment the lake's tone had been menacing, it now sounded almost calming. It hummed its hum, then quieted, never fully stopping, and instead of being replied to by the monsters, it sent to do its bidding. A response came from Jess's lap. What? Rodney said. The hum continued and so too did its exchange with the boy. I don't want to. Why? Will my mom and dad be there? No, Rodney cried. No, I won't. The creatures below all screamed. From deep in their stomachs, by way of their throats, they all screamed out shouts in tones entirely foreign to the human ear. The hum joined them, returning to its horrible, booming roar. Rodney buried his face in Jess's shoulder, sobbing. The noise was overwhelming, and I could almost feel the headache materializing in my forehead. And in an instant, the beasts stopped, and the hum returned to a tolerable level. At the same time, Rodney stopped crying and tried to push away from Jess, but she held on to him. I only saw his face for a moment, but in that moment I saw all that emotion— all life had left him. Everything that made little eight-year-old Rodney himself, all the adventurousness, the personality, the hopes, the dreams, all of it was gone. The moment I saw his face was when he pushed his head away just enough to get into position. Then he sank his teeth into Jess's throat, tearing away a chunk of skin and sinew and sending blood flowing down her neck. In an instant, Rodney turned around and was walking down the roof. As I did my best to stanch Jess's wound, I watched Rodney step down the shingles and topple forward and squinted my eyes as an inherent reaction to the blood-curdling sound I was expecting to hear. But I didn't hear that sound. Instead, the humming stopped, and I heard the sounds of one of the creatures vocalizing. And in reply, I heard Rodney. I can't be certain of what he said, but it was something along the lines of, Okay, let's go. 
and then they all began walking back toward the lake. The lake's envoys, with their lumbering gates, and Rodney with his sure-footed eight-year-old steps. They walked and walked and walked until they were enveloped in the shadows and out of sight. I tried my best to help Jess, but I'm not a medical professional. I used my shirt to keep pressure on the wound, but within minutes she was dead. I stayed up on Bob Harrison's roof for the next 16 hours, with Jess's dead, bloodied corpse roasting in the summer sun not three feet away from me. After a time, people started coming out of their homes, carefully avoiding the spots in the ground still damp with the lake's vengeance. They used plywood and furniture and vehicles to create bridges for those who were trapped, myself included. Twenty-seven bodies were pulled out of the neighborhood's flooded houses in the coming weeks. We crafted waterproof suits and footwear to traverse our town until such time as the water dried up or was otherwise cleared out. When the lake claimed its revenge, it resulted in the most harrowing thirty minutes of my life. It was roughly half an hour of chaos, death, confusion, and sorrow. But it put one thing into perspective. The one thing that so many of us had pondered for so long. The answer to the question that so many residents of Humming Lake had asked for so long, but for which none had ever dared seek. That half hour of dread gave us the reason for our town's oldest law, the source of which had been lost to time itself. Never touch the water. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. 
Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I hope you enjoyed Humming Lake, California, as written by Nick Boddick and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first story, you can help support our featured author by picking up a copy of their short story collection, The Things We Fear, or one of the many anthologies their work is featured in, all of them available now on Amazon. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash bodic. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash bodic, spelled B-O-T-I-C, and you'll be redirected to Amazon where you can explore the author's selection of books today. As an Amazon associate, a portion of your purchase made using that URL is provided to us as well as the author. Nick's first collection of his own tales, The Things We Fear, was published in 2018 and features a wide variety of tales to send shivers down your spine, including stories about a years-long stocking, a family terrified of things hunting them during blackouts, an agoraphobic man's journals from his time spent in his haunted house, a woman stretching, and much more. And today, we're doing a drawing to give away five copies of this amazing book to a few lucky listeners of this program. For your chance to win a copy of the book, simply leave our program a review on your podcast app of choice and email the screenshot to our director, Craig, at craig at chillingtalesfordarknights.com. The winners will be drawn randomly on September 20th, and if you're one of the lucky few, you'll be notified via email, and we'll send you a totally free copy of Nick's ebook in a format of your choosing. If you'd rather not take your chances, purchase your copy of The Things We Fear by Nick Boddock today at simplyscarypodcast.com slash Boddock, and rest assured you're helping the author more than you could ever know. I guarantee you, you won't be sorry you did. And when you do, be sure to leave a five-star review and a kind word on Amazon, and let the author know you heard about him here on this show. Thanks again for your support of this show, and of tonight's featured author. Up next, we've got a second tale of terror for you, courtesy once again of Dick Boddick. In it, a gentleman recounts, in the form of a letter to his daughter, how some very terrible agreements were made, and how very, very soon that agreement will be executed. Without further ado, I present to you Lillian. Our beautiful Catherine. My life was just about perfect, as close to it as could be without actually being so. I was young, with a promising career ahead of me, the love of my life by my side, the whole world at my fingertips. I was 23 years old, not a care in the world. I'd enjoyed all the milestones of my young life, but for one, I was yet to be a father. Your mother and I had tried, and we had tried, and we had tried for two years. For those two years, our attempts had been in earnest, but we were young enough that we figured we didn't need to rush. 
We both had the realization that something was wrong around the same time. So I took your mother to the doctor. It was then that we learned that your mother was unable to have children. The revelation was devastating, to say the least. We lived our life by some kind of loose plan, but this was the first time a specific point of it had been denied to us. Even still, with more credit to your mother than anything, we pushed through it. We began looking into alternatives and soon landed on adoption. It's a long process, adoption. Between the adoption agency, the lawyers, meeting prospective families from whom we might get a child, we ran ourselves ragged. The stress of it all, I'm sad to admit, put a strain on our marriage. That's when she came. I remember it was a Wednesday, just about two in the afternoon. Your mom and I were eating a late lunch when we heard a knock on the door. Standing on our porch was an attractive, fancy-looking woman, dressed all in white with a briefcase in hand, who informed us that she was aware of our predicament. When we asked how she came to know of it, she told us she was a consultant in the adoption agency we'd been going through. She introduced herself as Lillian and asked if we would be open to speaking with her for just a few moments. In hindsight, I should have slammed the door in her face, but I didn't. I invited her in, and the three of us sat down in our living room. She told us how sorry she was for our difficulty in having children, and lamented the frustration of both being a client of and working for an adoption agency. Then she asked the question that changed our lives forever. What if I told you that you two could, indeed, have a baby of your own. Your mother and I were equal parts skeptical and intrigued. Lillian told us that if we were interested, she could make possible our chances of having our very own child. Obviously, this sounded suspicious, but your mother and I agreed that we'd never forgiven ourselves if we hadn't heard her out. She opened her briefcase and retrieved two small vials of a dark liquid. She told us that if we consumed this liquid, it would enable your mother to get pregnant. She told us that we would have a happy, healthy baby and that we could have as many as we wanted. Then she told us that on our children's 16th birthdays, they would go through a change that normal children don't go through. This change wouldn't hurt them, that it would cause them no pain at all. Lillian told us that she offered this only to hopeful parents whom she felt truly deserved it, to people who she felt would give a child a good home. If I didn't stress it enough before, please understand that our inability to have a child had really taken its toll on us. It seemed so foolish in retrospect, an utterly ambiguous deal with what was made to sound like a minimal consequence. In truth... She took advantage of our grief, our frustration, our pain. She manipulated our vulnerability and our desire to have a child, and we fell for it. We accepted the deal. The liquid in the vial I drank was all but flavorless. We each drank it, and that was it. There was no feeling. It was as if we drank a vial of water. 
Lillian wished us well and went on her way. We've only seen her one time since then. Soon after that day, we learned that your mother was pregnant. We were ecstatic, to say the least. Just under nine months after that, your mom gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. We named her Jenna. I'm sure this will come as a shock to you, learning that we had a baby before you. We didn't have you until Jenna was twelve, so it's not unreasonable that you don't remember her. Over the years, you've mentioned certain memories, and I'm sorry to say that I've done all I could to erase any trace of Jenna from them. I'm truly sorry, Catherine. Anyhow, on Jenna's sixteenth birthday, as it approached, your mother and I speculated on what would happen. The surreality of the encounter with Lillian so many years earlier took our minds to wild places. We wondered if she was going to grow wings, if she was going to turn into a giant, all sorts of outrageous scenarios. On the morning of her birthday, your mother and I walked upstairs with breakfast for Jenna to enjoy in bed. When we opened the door, we expected to find her asleep. Instead, we found her standing in the center of her room, simply staring at the door, at us. There was nothing immediately noticeably different about her, but something was off. The tone of her voice, maybe. It was a long time ago, and I've done everything I can to block that day out of my memory, so... Please excuse any lack of particulars. You, me, and your mother sang happy birthday and gave her breakfast, and she gave us a half-hearted thank you. That whole morning, though, all she could focus on was you. Her eyes rarely left yours. She would whisper things to you, and you would look at her confused. I only heard one thing she said to you that day. We'll meet again, I promise. We will serve her together. I think it was at that moment that I knew the girl we'd raised, the beautiful, smart, funny, kind, caring girl we'd loved for sixteen years, and she was gone. Around noon, she took a change of clothes into the bathroom and turned the shower on. Assuming she left out the window immediately, she was gone for about three minutes. What happened then, I remember as clearly as I remember yesterday. She came back through the front door, and she was covered in blood from head to toe, as if she'd swam in a pool full of it. She stepped into the living room where your mother and I were. We were in shock. She had no expression on her face. She was just indifferent to the situation entirely. But her face was different in a way. It was angry twisted. Her eyes were bigger, and instead of the gorgeous blue they'd always been, they were cloudy white with flakes of red. Then in walked Lillian, all dressed in black. "'Say goodbye, dear,' Lillian said to Jenna. What Jenna said, it felt like I'd been punched in the gut. "'Yes, mother.' Jenna walked up to me and gave me a hug, but it wasn't her. It was like she had never hugged anyone before, like she had read about it somewhere and was trying it for herself for the first time. I was too afraid to move, so I just stood there awkwardly 
as she finished with me and did the same to your mother. Thank you for raising me. Goodbye. There was no emotion in her voice. It was just wooden, completely void of any personal connection. We may have once shared. Lillian ushered Jenna out of the house and looked back to us. You've done well. We will meet again. And with that, she left. Once I snapped out of my paralyzing fear and confusion a few seconds later, I ran out the front door. But it was too late. They were gone. We called the police and told them what happened. And we found out what Jenna had done when we thought she was stepping in to take a shower. In our neighborhood, there were only two houses that she'd gone to. One was a house two away from ours, the other about three blocks away. The police say she attacked at random. Just whichever person she saw first, she slaughtered. They never found the victim's hearts either. What really stumped them was the exact same thing that happened at 12 other houses spread out across town and in the next town over and the next town after that, all at just about the same time. The victims were butchered, left in the middle of circles made of their own blood. Also, with their blood were various symbols drawn on the walls. Investigators initially thought it was some kind of coordinated attack that there were multiple perpetrators who struck simultaneously. But all the witnesses, and there were a lot of witnesses, said they'd only seen one person. A young woman, long brown hair, pretty, between five foot two and five foot four. When shown a picture of Jenna, they all confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was she who had attacked their loved ones. When looking into Lillian, investigators found that no such woman had ever been in the employ of, or in any way connected to, any of the adoption agencies we'd interacted with 16 years prior. They never found another trace of Jenna from that day forward. It was as if she'd vanished from the face of the earth. Once we were able to leave town, we moved across the country to this house. That brings me to you, my beautiful Catherine. Your birthday is in two days. On that day, something is going to happen to you. Even after everything, I can't begin to speculate as to what that something may be. But nevertheless, it will. I can only assume Lillian will return for you. No matter what happens, your mother and I will always love you. Always. Nothing will ever change that. So please don't think that what's happening now means anything different. I know you weren't expecting to spend the days leading up to your birthday locked in the basement, chained to the wall, but I hope the room I built provides you at least a little bit of comfort. I can only imagine how scary and confusing this must be for you. I hope you understand that we can't let anyone else get hurt. All we wanted was a child of our own, and we loved the children we had. We loved you deeply, unconditionally. I hope you don't hate us. If I would have had any idea what was going to happen to Jenna, I would have done what I'm doing now back then with her. We just needed a baby, Catherine. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine what goes on inside of you when it happens. I would take all of it on myself if I could. 
I have no doubt that Lillian is going to return. When she does, I will do everything I can to keep her from you. I'm sorry to all the people hurt by the decision we made all those years ago, but I will never say I regret it. Your mother and I have cherished every single second we've gotten to spend with you, and we are going to do whatever we can to keep you here with us. I love you, sweetheart. We both do. I'll never forgive myself for you having to go through this, or for Jenna having had to go through it. And it keeps me up at night knowing I have two more daughters to whom I may very well have to write this same letter in just a couple short years. Only they'll remember what happens with you. Aria and Cassie love their big sister so much. Whatever happens on Wednesday, please try. Just try not to hurt anyone. And if you see Jenna, please tell her we love her and miss her. I'll bring down food for you at 6 p.m. Love, always. Your father. To anyone reading this, I don't know what's going to happen on Wednesday. But I feel as though I owe it to you to tell you to protect yourself. I don't know what Lillian does with the children or people who drink from these vials, but I know that those children can hurt people. I truly hope none of you have to pay the price for our desperation. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hope you enjoyed Lillian by author Nick Bodick as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author has an amazing collection of his stories for sale on Amazon.com, alongside a variety of anthologies he's been featured in over the years. You can help support Nick by picking up a copy of The Things We Fear from Amazon in the Kindle edition. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Bodic, spelled B-O-T-I-C. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash Bodic, and you'll be redirected to Amazon where you can get started giving yourself the creeps today. And again, if you give the things we fear a try, please consider leaving the author a quality review and a kind word and be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program. That would mean a lot to both of us. Oh, and don't forget, for your chance to win a free digital copy of Nick's book, leave this podcast a review on your podcast app of choice and email the screenshot to our director, Craig, 
C-R-A-I-G, Craig at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. Five winners will be drawn randomly on September 20th, and if you're one of the lucky few, you'll be notified via email, and we'll send you a totally free copy of Nick's collection of thrilling tales in a format of your choosing. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Learn more about him on his official website at nickbodick.com or follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Reddit to see more of his work and keep up with his latest releases. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S 
at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>